Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 16th day of October, 2016. It's a heartwarming story of an out-of-work family man who created a board game during the Great Depression, and this board game made him a huge success. It's a story that was told for almost 40 years, and it was a lie. Today I tell the true tale of how the game of Monopoly came to be on the 109th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Thanks for having a cup of coffee with me today. I appreciate it. You know, I don't know if I've ever finished a game of Monopoly, and from what I've read, I've probably never played it correctly. According to many websites, most people don't even know the correct rules to the game, and I'm probably one of them. You know, I'd like to have a Monopoly app one that me and five or six other people could use to play the game of Monopoly with our cell phones. You know, I play chess on my phone, and the nice part about that is I can take my turn whenever I feel like it. There's no hurry. One game of chess can last weeks, if not months. Couldn't someone do the same thing with Monopoly? You know, just let me take my turn whenever whenever I feel like it. Anyway, Parker Brothers, get on that. Yes, today's story is about the famous board game, the first really successful board game in history. But here's what's weird, right? The enjoyment most people get out of that game today is the exact opposite of why it was created in the first place. And the lady who created it, and yes, it was a woman who created it, not a man, well, she wanted to teach... Oh, wait a minute. We've got some Bigfoot news. The headline reads, Some see Bigfoot photobombing Eagle's Nest Cam. Yeah, according to the Detroit Free Press, there was a camera mounted in a tree near the Platte River State Fish Hatchery in Michigan, which was set up to watch a nest of little eagles on the internet. And apparently, in one shot, people see Bigfoot wandering around in the background. Of course... Since the camera was mounted high up in a tree to watch these little birds, the hairy beast appears small in the distance and, of course, out of focus. You can watch the video online. I'll have a link to it on the Coffee with Jeff show notes. But it can't be somebody who knew the camera was there playing a practical joke or anything like that, right? It has to be Bigfoot and, uh, well, whatever. We can file this with the rest of the out-of-focus Bigfoot footage. Anyway, how about we hear the true story of how the game of Monopoly came to be and how the legend of its creation was busted in court. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Hello, Parker Brothers, kind 
brings people together. Delayed. Monopoly's been bringing people together for almost 50 years. That's how long we've been wheeling and dealing together, building hotels together, and going to jail together. Corner the market in utilities. You can't lose. Share a smile and your day seems a whole lot better. Parker Brothers kind of fun. Brings people together. It was during the Depression that Charles Darrow who had lost his job during the stock market crash of 1929, began working on a new board game in his basement. It was a game of buying and selling property, and he called it Monopoly. After perfecting the game with his family and patenting his creation, he sold his homemade version door-to-door. While his attempt at self-marketing wasn't successful, eventually he was able to sell his invention to Parker Brothers, and with that, gained a huge success. He became a millionaire. It was the perfect American success story of how a down-and-out family man goes from rags to riches, using nothing more than his own ingenuity. He invented a game in his basement to support his family during the Depression, a game that would go on to become an American icon. This is the story of the world's most popular board game, Monopoly. It was the perfect great American success story. It was such a fantastic tale that it was even printed inside of the game itself. This would be a great story if it were true, but of course, like so many great success stories, it's simply a lie. While it is true that without Charles Darrow, we might never have heard of the game Monopoly, and he did help turn it into the game that we all know and love, perfecting the rules and whatnot, he's definitely not the inventor. Like many times throughout history, it's not the inventor who gets the cash or the credit for the product, but it's the person who found a way to capitalize on it. Elizabeth J. Maggie, who was known as Lizzie to her friends, was born in Macomb, Illinois in 1966. This was one year after the end of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln's assassination. In fact, her father, James Maggie, was a newspaper publisher and an abolitionist who traveled with Lincoln around Illinois in the late 1850s during the political debates with Lincoln and Stephen Douglas. Lizzie and her father were very close. I have been called a chip off the old block, Lizzie said of her relationship with her father which I consider quite a compliment, for I am proud of my father for being the kind of old block that he is. It was her dad who gave her a copy of Henry George's book, Progress and Poverty. Henry George was a proponent of the single-tax movement known as Georgism. He felt that land, along with other natural resources, is a common inheritance of all. No person or firm should own land. They should only be able to rent it, and that rent should be paid to the public. He believed in just one tax, a tax on property, but not on the development of property. George argued that land value taxes should replace all other taxation, leaving labor and capital to flourish freely, and thus would end unemployment, poverty, inflation, and equality. Whether Georgism was right or wrong, I'm not in a position to say, but Lizzie definitely believed in what Henry was saying. Now, Lizzie worked as a stenographer, which was sort of a new profession after the Civil War because of the new invention called the typewriter. But over the years, she also wrote short stories and poetry, 
She was a comedian, a stage actress, a feminist, and an engineer, and by 1906, a newspaper reporter. In 1910, she got married at the age of 44 to Albert Phillips, but in 1902, at the age of 36, she was single and the head of a household, something that was almost unheard of for a woman in the early 20th century. It was around 1902 that she began to design a game to be a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. It was based on Georgism and was to show how rents enrich property owners and impoverish tenants. She called it the landlord's game, with the idea to find a simple way to show a complicated theory that many people found hard to understand. She spent most of her free time drawing and redrawing the game. This was at a time when America had seen the rise of the robber barons, people such as Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller, and many people thought that their incredible wealth came off the backs of the poor and struggling worker. People like Lizzie thought this was one of the dangers of capitalism. She felt it was greed that would be America's downfall. This game could demonstrate that to win, you had to send everybody else to the poorhouse. This carries on to the game we know as Monopoly, which clearly says in the rules, the last player left wins the game. In 1903, she applied for a patent for her new game. It consisted of a square board with 20 spaces that players traveled around as they played. There were nameless properties to rent or buy, railroads in the middle of each side, a luxury tax, a water and light franchise, which would later become the Waterworks and Electric Company in the Monopoly game we know today. There was a luxury tax, a jail, and a space that said, no trespassing, go to jail. Along with the similarities to the game we all know, there was also some differences, like the absolute necessity spaces. Landing on one of these spaces cost the player money for things they needed to survive such as the coal tax, bread tax, shelter tax, and a clothing tax. The starting corner, which we all know as collect $200, just had the words, labor among Mother Earth produces wages. Now one of the most unique and revolutionary parts of the game, something that is common these days, was the fact that there was no beginning or end to the board. One just rolled a die and kept traveling around in endless circles till the game was over. The patent was granted in 1904, and in 1906, Lizzie and a few friends formed the Economic Game Company, which was set up to publish the game. In 1909, she approached Parker Brothers, but they rejected the game as they thought it was a little too complicated. And perhaps some say that they thought it was a little too political. Elizabeth J. Maggie was a pretty remarkable woman in her day. When she was having problems supporting herself on $10 a week as a stenographer and the fact that she was an outspoken feminist, she staged an audacious stunt which made national headlines. She put an ad in the paper, the Pilston Gazette, in which she offered herself for sale as a young woman American slave to the highest bidder. She said that she had a rare and versatile dramatic ability, a born entertainer, strong bohemian characteristics, can appreciate a good story, and at the same time, she is deeply and truly religious, but not pious. The ad quickly became the subject of news stories and gossip columns in newspapers across the country. 
The goal of the stunt, Maggie told reporters, was to make a statement about the dismal position of women. We are not machines, Maggie said. Girls have minds, desires, hopes, and ambitions. And besides her patent for the landlord's game, she also received a patent for a gadget that allowed paper to pass through typewriter rollers with more ease. Lizzie and her friends tried to market their game independently, and Lizzie kept on improving it. By 1906, she had designed a better-looking version of the game, and now she gave the properties names such as George Street, Rickety Row, and Lonely Lane. She also added in chance cards, which you picked up and read when you landed on the space marked Chance. There were tokens and deeds to the properties, and even little square pieces of paper that were used as houses to improve purchase property. The game sold well, especially in the Northeast among its left-wing intellectuals. In the UK, the game was published under the name Briar Fox and the Briar Rabbit, but it didn't sell so well. One problem that Lizzie had was that, as was common at the time, people began making their own homemade versions of the game. It became common for people to draw their own boards and give the properties names of local streets. There were New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and many more versions of the game. And each one of these games had variations on the rules. While Lizzie's original message was an anti-capitalism one, the bootleg versions of the games glorified capitalism, and people got a thrill over crushing their opponents. People seemed to enjoy bankrupting their families and friends. Over the years, people stopped calling the game the landlord's game and began referring to it as Monopoly. Games are still turning up these days, long before Parker Brothers published the game with the name Monopoly written in the center of the board. One group that really embraced the game were the Quakers around Atlantic City, who created their own version using familiar places, and they also added in hotels to go along with the houses. Maggie renewed her patent for the game in 1923. And then one day in 1932, during the height of the Great Depression, a Philadelphia man named Charles Todd was invited for dinner at one of his childhood friend's home, Esther Jones. Esther was married to Charles Darrow. They brought along a copy of The Landlord's Game, or probably by then it was called Monopoly, and after dinner they all sat down and played. This was the Atlantic City version of the game. By this time, the properties were all grouped much like they are today and even had the same colors. When the night was over, Darrow asked Charles Todd for a copy of the rules, something that Todd found extremely odd. And soon after that, Darrow began working on his own version of the game. And it is said once his version of the game was published, the Todds never spoke to him again. His original board was almost identical to the Quaker's version, except he made it a round board and drew it on cloth. His original board is still on display at Parker Brothers. Eventually he changed it back into a square board, the one we all know today, except it wasn't printed on cardboard, it was printed on oil cloth. Darrow's contribution to the game that we all know today is some of the familiar art, such as the red arrow for go, the black locomotives on the railroad spaces, the faucet on waterworks, and the light bulb on electric company. He even created the question mark on the chance space. 
Now, at this time, the American toy and game manufacturer that had been around since 1883, Parker Brothers, was on the verge of bankruptcy. They weren't doing so good. They heard of this game Monopoly that was being sold by Charles Darrow at the Wanamaker's department store in Philadelphia. After meeting with Darrow, they ended up purchasing the game from him for $7,000 plus residuals. Now, before the purchase by Parker Brothers, the game didn't include any playing pieces. Just like the Landlord's game, players found their own tokens, like buttons or coins. At first, Parker Brothers included boring wooden pieces, but by 1937, strange metal die-cast pieces were included. The first tokens were a car, a flat iron, a lantern, a thimble, shoe, top hat, and rocking horse. Later that year, a battleship and cannon were added to raise the number of tokens to 10. But why this odd assortment? Well, this is one of those stories that's hard to track down, but the best guess is they went to the Doust Manufacturing Company who repurposed dyes they already had in inventory. One site I went to said that these were actually created for prizes that came in Cracker Jack boxes. The game Monopoly was a huge success all over the world. I mean, it was a monster, and this saved Parker Brothers. And part of this game's charm was the fact that it was invented by an out-of-work man to support his family. The problem, of course, that we all know now is that this story isn't true. And Parker Brothers and Charles Darrow began to worry about the truth getting out. At this time, they were hearing from people who said, Hey, I've played this game before. It's been around for 30 years. The first thing Parker Brothers did was to get Darrow to write an affidavit saying that he was the sole inventor. Another problem was that Darrow wasn't the first person to try to market this game. A man named Dan Lehman had created a game called Finance based on the Landlord's game, and Milton Bradley had a game called Easy Money, and there were, there were quite a few others. Parker Brothers quickly began to buy up the rights to all these games in an effort to keep Darrow's story alive. And it worked. Everyone in America heard the heartwarming tale and loved it. Everyone but a 70-year-old woman named Elizabeth J. Maggie. Lizzie was pissed off. She did an interview in the Washington Star in which she showed both her Landlord's Game and Parker Brothers' Monopoly. By then, Parker Brothers apparently had given her $500 and no residuals for her rights to the game, which is nothing when you take into account the time she put in developing the game and the money she spent patenting it. There's a question that has never been answered. Why, if Lizzie had two patents on this game, why did the patent office grant Barrow and Parker Brothers a patent to a very similar game? Many of the records are lost, so we will probably never know. In fact, researcher Mary Pillen, who wrote the book The Monopolists, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Most Favorite Board Game, said, as a researcher, you just hit this wall and you're like, ah, we will never know. When Charles B. Darrow died on August 28, 1967, his obituary said, Charles B. Darrow dies at 78, inventor of Game of Monopoly. Almost 20 years before that, Lizzie Maggie had died at age 82, and in, and in contrast to Darrow's obituary, Hers was just a little one-paragraph thing that didn't even mention the Landlord's Game or Monopoly. And for years and years, Parker Brothers encouraged the myth of Charles Darrow and his invention. 
And even today, it might have been the official story, if not for a San Francisco State University professor, Ralph Anspach. In response to Monopoly, he created a game called Anti-Monopoly in 1973 with the intent to demonstrate how harmful monopolies could be to free enterprise systems and how antitrust laws work to curtail them in the real world. The game worked and looked very much like Monopoly with with property deeds, hotels and houses, cards similar to chance and community chest, and even paper money. The big difference was how the game was played. It begins where Monopoly finishes, with the board in a monopolized state, and players work to return the state of the board to a free market system. <clears throat> Parker Brothers wasn't happy with this new game and sued Anspach for the use of the Monopoly name, claiming trademark infringement. In his research for his defense, Anspach discovered the truth of Lizzie Maggie and the Landlord's Game and, and Darrow's sale of the game to Parker Brothers in 1935. He based his defense on the grounds that the game existed long before Parker Brothers had purchased it and that effectively made it public domain, and therefore Parker Brothers' trademark claim should be nullified. It took 10 years of court battling before Anstach finally won, and unfortunately, at one point, Parker Brothers thought they had won the case, and they confiscated all his versions of anti-monopoly and buried them in a landfill. You know, it could be me, but I, I think Parker Brothers could have saved a lot of time and money, as well as keeping the truth of the origins of the game secret, if they would have just settled with them early in 1974, but that's how things go. Now, one interesting thing that was brought up in the trial to prove that Charles Darrow didn't invent the game was this. You see, in court, when one's trying to prove that something was copied, one thing you look for is mistakes or misspellings that have also been copied. That's because it's rare that two people could make the same mistake, and that's a clue to copyright infringement. Now, the game Charles Todd brought to Darrow was one he had copied from the Quakers in Atlantic City. And Charles Todd had never been to Atlantic City. And when he copied the game, he had misspelled Marvin Gardens. He spelled Marvin, M-A-R-V-I-N, when the actual garden is spelled M-A-R-V-E-N. Now what are the odds that Darrow created a game all by himself and also misspelled Marvin Gardens? Anyway, Lizzie McGee is starting to get the credit she deserves more and more these days, but unfortunately, it's one of those things that's, well, too little, too late. What is your name, please? My name is Charles B. Darrow. What is your name, please? My name is Charles B. Darrow. What is your name, please? My name is Charles B. Darrow. Very well, panel. Will you follow along with your copies of this next affidavit? I, Charles B. Darrow, used to be a heating sales engineer. During the Depression in the 1930s, I was out of a job. Having nothing else to do, I invented a game. To date, that game has sold over 15 million copies in more than 50 countries throughout the world. I am the man who created the game Monopoly. Signed, Charles B. Darrow. Will the real Charles B. Darrow please stand up? Has anybody got a match? 
Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. So when you play Monopoly, do you make up your own rules? I mean, I've played with people that, you know, when you land on go, you get $400 rather than $200 and all the money from the cards and stuff, taxes go into the center of the board. And when you land on free parking, you get all that cash. And I've read so many places that say most people don't play Monopoly right. But as I'm saying this, I I begin to wonder, does anybody even play Monopoly anymore? Is it all video games and fast graphics these days? I mean, I know there's Monopoly tournaments, but I think those people are, you know, the exception to the rule. I don't know if a lot of people still play board games. Anyway, you know, I'm going to have to cut the end of the show a little short today. I've got a lot of things going on, and um, I just wanted to announce that I'm not positive there's going to be a show next week. I've got so many things going on this week. I'm going to try, but if there's no show next week, I apologize. So now let me go to the credits so I can get out of here. You know, if you want to be a sponsor to the show, you can go to Psycon's Patreon page and become a monthly donator. We could really use your cash to support this network. And speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. That's Psycon, C-S-I-C-O-N.fm. And you know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years david metzger for designing the coffee with jeff logo kelly rickard for writing and performing the coffee with jeff theme and to all of you who listen to the show every week thank you so much and a special shout out to all those that repost this on facebook and twitter you have a special place in my heart and i mean that thanks to everybody maybe i'll be back next week otherwise i'll be back in two weeks bye coffee with jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff.
Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee with Jeff Coffee on Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff